0: our goal is to provide you with valuable real estate resources and to help you apply it to your own real estate goals. Welcome to, to today's episode of the How Did They Do It Real Estate podcast. I'm your host, Eileen Prack. And today, our guest is Brian Underwood. And he is the founding principal of Responsible Residential and president of Responsible Real Estate, a San Diego-based real estate investment company. And prior to launching these companies, he also worked as the acquisitions manager for Caster Properties, which focuses on self-storage. And he He has a wide variety of background experiences in the real estate space. Now he's working on urban development, which we're going to get into it to a little bit into this episode as well. But Brian, thank you for being here on the show today. Welcome. And how are you doing? Thank
1: you for having me. Appreciate it. Look forward to this conversation.
0: So Brian... There's going to be so much in this interview. You've done so many different pieces within real estate, across different asset classes. But let's start with your background. And first of all, how did you get started with real estate?
1: Great question. So one thing that you will uncover probably throughout this interview is the fact that I'm just kind of like a real estate geek. <laughs> like I just love everything about it and that is ultimately like how I got started was just the curiosity around like what is it what makes it tick like what are the different components that touch it so I'll give you an example so we'll get into this because I got to see my family who has a real estate company involved in self-storage. I got to see them from afar. My grandfather started it. My uncle runs it. It wasn't directly in my family, but I got to see the impact that real estate had on the family for not only generational wealth, but also freedom, the financial freedom aspect of it. And so when I got into real estate, it was outside of the family business, but I was curious about what made it work. And so what I found is a mentor of mine who was actually just getting involved in real estate himself. Now you might say, okay, so a mentor who's getting involved in real estate himself, what can he teach you? Well, He was 25 years older than me. So he had been seasoned in business and seasoned in uh, power electronics, sold the company. I had never sold a company before. And he was doing his first development deal. This was the middle of 2000s. And I said, well, I'd love to learn, right? You don't have to pay me anything. I just want to come learn. And so I got my salesperson license. And through that process of helping him, we identified a piece of real estate in Santee, which is a submarket in East County, San Diego. And we bought it. And that was my first real estate deal. So even though I knew nothing about real estate, I had just learned about a pro forma. I learned about business plans. I got my real estate license, and so I, you know, I was just learning. And I put together a business plan. I met with a family member, and I said, "I have an opportunity." I need to borrow $50,000. And here's how I'm going to pay you back. And about six months later, we got an offer on that property for $425,000. We purchased it for $150,000. And so I gave the family member back their money. I gave them their interest. I, you know, We paid all the closing costs. And I think I had about $70,000 in the bank. And this was in 05. And I was just like, okay, how do I do that again? <laughs> right. That was my entry into real estate. I was hooked. And, you know, from there, I just kept learning and we can get into that. But that was my entry.
0: So, when you were getting into real estate, you said that there are so many different things that you love about it and you just wanted to find out what made it tick. How did it work? The ins and outs of it. So, now that you've done it for quite some time now, I have to ask, what is the one thing that you love the most about it? And maybe one thing that you pull your hair out (laughs) because of.
1: (laughs) So real estate is anything but a linear path. So now we can define where we want to be. We can say, I'm here today and this is where I want to be. But to get there... Is a lot of hurdles, challenges, bruises, hair pulling. I mean, you name it. And quite frankly, you just have to have a very optimistic outlook on life. You have to have an incredible amount of grit and never a lack of diligence. It's just to keep going and press forward. It suits maybe my personality because I get bored easy and I'm never bored in real estate because. So you're always dealing with a new piece of property. No piece of property is the same. It's like our DNA or our hands. There's no piece of property that's identical. In addition to that, in order to put a deal together, you're dealing with a human, right? You're dealing with personality and no personality is the same. So every time you're trying to buy a piece of property, it's a brand new unique experience. Now with those unique experiences, right? Comes with the experience. So we get better and better at it, but no two deals are the same. And so it just It keeps me invigorated. It keeps me challenged. And ultimately, I'm always trying to find myself in a position of growth. And so I'm always up for the next challenge. Maybe that's my personality. That's why I'm a real estate geek.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so you also mentioned that your family has done self-storage. They own their own self-storage company. So you grew up with seeing that side of things, and it's primarily focused in California and the San Diego region. So can you give us kind of the lay of the land of you know the market in San Diego, and how is that performing with self-storage, and how does it perform typically?
1: Oh, that's great. So yes, the company is headquartered in San Diego. When I started with the company was 2007. So just before the great recession. And I came into the company and the company at that time had 42 self-storages. Of the 42 self-storages, I think at that time, maybe only one of them was an existing acquisition. So the other 41, the family built ground up, developed ground up. And so when I came into the picture, we had 42. When I left in 17, we were close to 60. So in a 10-year period, I got to deploy $60 million buying land and securing entitlements throughout California and even Texas for a million and a half square feet of self-storage. In California, we focused on basically the coastal markets. And you know there's a lot of different ways to approach self-storage, and it's very much a growing product. But we had... I think there's 15 or 18 criteria that internally we set out. So to identify a site, it was a certain size, it was a certain zone, it had certain features to it, it was close to a main arterial, so you had signage, there was a minimum of 150,000 people in a three-mile ring. Again, just kind of spitting off some of the criteria, and we would grade sites accordingly. And so our focus was always to go in some of the most challenging sites with the most amount of people. Income was very much a criteria that we were driven by, because at the end of the day, you don't need a self-storage facility. It's really discretionary income. So we were trying to get into markets where the discretionary income was available. California and coastal markets and self-storage has done quite well, and it continues to do well. Sometimes I scratch my head like, How can people pay that much for a 10 by 10 unit? (laughs) I mean, it kind of blows my mind. I mean, when I was right in the thick of it, like 2015 and 16, I ended up leaving in 17. There were only a handful of our self-storages that brought in over $2 a square foot on average. So like occupied units bringing in $2 a square foot. There was only two one was in los angeles and one was in the bay area and now i'd say majority of the portfolio is over 2 dollars a foot if not some approaching 3 dollars a foot so you're talking in a pretty short period of time pretty substantial growth let me also give you the backdrop of like pre great recession post great recession because pre great recession self storage was extremely small and it really kind of still is today now it's grown but you knew everybody there weren't a lot of new players the capital that was in self storage outside of the publicly traded reits were like family offices it just wasn't very sophisticated when the great recession happened you had every product type all the main food groups going back 30 40% and self storage up 30 40% so every analyst every fund manager right is going what the heck is this we were like the excuse my language, but like the bastard industrial product. You know (laughs) what I mean? Like no one cared about self-storage. It was like this quasi subgroup of industrial that no one cared about. Until
0: they saw the returns and the metrics.
1: That's right. The tide turned and I'm still baffled by how much capital and how many new people are involved in self-storage. I mean, Anybody that has any interest in real estate, if you ask them a question like, what are you focused on or what are you interested in? Self-storage is one of those products. Everybody. (laughs) And it's just not that big, right? I mean, I need 14 new people in an area to create demand for one storage unit, one 10 by 10. Okay. well, we are building facilities with 1,000 units, right? So, like... Try to find places where it's like, you know, you're growing that much and you can go build ahead of it. And it's an interesting product, but it's very like three mile localized. You can't just go build it and expect people just to like lease up storages. It doesn't work that way. So the people that got in early definitely benefited from a filling in pockets of demand that didn't otherwise exist. Now, I think there's a lot of markets based off of certain metrics that are probably at. At their demand, if not, maybe a little bit oversupplied, but I'm not out building storages anymore. I'm building much needed housing. And all I need is 2.7 bodies for one new unit instead of 14 for one self-storage unit. So I like that metric.
0: (laughs) That is a pretty good metric. So I want to get into what you're focused on today as well. But before we jump off the self-storage piece of things, I have to ask, what was the difference between developing a self-storage unit versus purchasing an already built and just taking it over and building it up? Like, what was the difference between those two? And was it more beneficial to build it ground up in terms of time and getting the permits to be able to zone it for that kind of property project versus actually just acquiring one that's already done?
1: If I had to go back, this is the way I interpret the question. If I had to go back and do it all over again, would I have spent the time developing or just buying everything I could get my hands on? And at the time, okay, I can go back and I can look exactly what happened to the market. I would have bought everything I can get my hands on and I would not have built anything. Because the valuations from when I was in self-storage to where they are today, they were in nobody's projections. Okay, (laughs) Nobody projected the assets to be as much as they were and much as they are today. The reason why we focused on development is because we like to look at and we like to create value. So similar to people going and buying old apartments and doing a value add approach, which you can also do in self storage. Just the value add approach and your return margins are pretty tight. Where at the time I could build a call it a twelve to fourteen million dollar self storage facility, and literally the day I built it, it was worth eighteen. And if I had at least up, it might be worth 20, right? Well, now it's worth 50. Okay. So no one would project that, but that value created was very much a metric that we like to go off of. So we had obviously our return on cost metric that we were trying to get to internally. A construction loan, we had to make sure that we had to refinance and get permanent financing on and be comfortable and sleep well at night able to do that, right? But It really comes down to like that value creation, and that's really what drove the family. Even though, in theory, they never capitalized on that value creation because they don't sell anything, right? But the cash flow continues to go up, the debt continues to go down, and more than half the portfolio has zero debt on it. It's not more than that. I mean, it's incredible. (laughs) I mean, talk about cash flow. You know, it's like I'm trying. That's where I want to (laughs) be. Infinite
0: returns at this point.
1: (laughs) Oh my gosh! Yeah, it's incredible. So. Did that answer your question specifically on the self storage side.
0: Yes, thank you. So, if we were to fast forward now, if we want to fast forward to what you're focused on today, which is the urban development side of things, how did you make that transition, and why urban development, and what does that term even mean to you, and what people think about it when they hear about that term?
1: So, the transition came in 2016, maybe a little bit before that, and. You know, I was an employee for the family business. I was growing. I was tapped to be the next CEO of the $2 billion company. But I was kind of dying inside because there was not a place for me to really keep growing within the company. It was keep your head down. You'll be fine in 20 years. Just keep buying the best two deals you can do every single year, right? And after 10 years of doing that, it was pretty easy to find two deals. And I don't mean that to pat myself on the back. It's just the ten thousand hour rule—you get really good at something. You're going to find two deals, and so I realized that I'm fitting within their box of a company, and I either had to be happy with that box or I had to figure out how to rotate out of that and continue to stimulate myself and challenge myself. So I got comfortable with the idea of me sort of replacing myself as the next CEO, taking on a bunch of risk, kind of forfeiting the very secure position I was in, taking on a lot of risk, but kind of have unlimited potential. Wherever we want to go with this. And so I ended up transferring out in 2017, very much interested in home building. I actually didn't know that's exactly what I was going to get into. The only thing I knew is that I wasn't going to create a competitor self storage company. I very well could have. I think a lot of people thought I was crazy that I decided to not go back into self storage. But there's a lot of ways to make money in storage. And to me, it's not all about money, right? I just love the process. And so I actually put my broker hat on for the very first time, and I was brokering a piece of land that was entitled for 10 townhomes. In
0: California and San Diego?
1: Yes, in San Diego. And I decided after about four months of marketing that property, this is my very first deal on the housing side. And I just had reached out to a lot of my network who had been in home building for the last 20, 30, 40 years in San Diego. And I'm thinking to myself, why aren't we building more? And they're saying, well, go find a deal. And I'm going, okay, well, I have a deal. Let's just put this together, right? And so I ended up buying that piece of property that I was brokering and put the capital together, got a construction loan. And that product right now is fully built, leased up and under contract to sell. So we're about to go full circle on that particular project. Through that, build the townhome experience, I hired a project manager, Michael Dunham, with Urban Housing Partners. This is a relationship I've had for 10 plus years. They are synonymous with urban development, high-rise type one towers in downtown San Diego. This is what they do. I thought there's no way Mike wants to take on a small little townhome project. But because of the relationship, he said, hey, if this is what you want to do, I'm glad to help you. And organically, what we realized as we were working through this project over the last couple of years is that Urban Housing Partners was pivoting from being an owner's rep or project manager on a for-hire basis, just a fee, that they are very much interested now in taking on their own development opportunities. And here's me and my business partner, Sean, doing this build-to-rent townhome and one of the big takeaways, there's many takeaways, but one of the big ones was I want to go bigger. <laughs> I'm going to spend the same amount of time, same amount of effort, same amount of challenges. In fact, maybe arguably less challenges if I built hundred units. So let's go build hundred units. And so what's happened organically, again, through these relationships is Sean and I have now become partners in urban housing partners. And we bought a piece of land last year in North Park in San Diego. We are getting ready to submit for plan check for 89 market rate apartments. And we have control over a whole city block in National City. And we will be designing 240 units on that particular project. So when you talk about urban housing partners or urban development, it's very much, I don't want to say brownfield because it's not dirty, but it's a piece of property that already had some use on it. It's not developed brand new. You look north east west south and there's an existing house commercial building or something around it you are in the heart of the city and so what you're doing is taking an existing piece of property that might be a restaurant and you are repurposing that building through entitlements for something that's much better and much greater for the neighborhood and we are building beautiful residential podium projects which are basically seven levels, which I think in Southern California, you're familiar with this product type. If you're in the middle of nowhere, it may be less familiar. But I tell my uncle who's in North Carolina, I say, Dan, I'm building 89 units on 14,000 square feet. And he can't wrap his head around it. He says, what do you mean? (laughs) I said, well, that's what you do with seven floors, right? He's like, 89 units would take me like, you know, 12 acres, Mm-hmm. To, right. Just a all garden just a style. <laughs> exactly. All garden style. So when we talk about urban development, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about in the heart of the city, a lot of people around and really repositioning older pieces of property, different uses into the highest and best use.
0: Can we get some type of, I don't know if you're able to share this or not, but like that first 10 units, since you're going to be coming up on the close on this, can we break down a little bit on like the land cost and what it actually costs to actually develop and build it up and the total time frame it actually took from start to finish?
1: Yeah. So that total project is $5.5 million. Okay. So that's hard cash. That's everything. So I raised a million and a half dollars out of the front and I have a $4 million construction loan. And we bought the land for $800,000, okay? So $80,000 a unit. It already had entitlements. And I'd say very rough, like construction drawings, just architectural, nothing else. The owners before me spent three years with the city of Santee doing a general plan amendment, zone change, mitigated negative deck. So that's CEQA, tentative map, and a development review permit. So it took them three years to get that done. And I was brokering the deal with the entitlements in place and then ended up buying it. So I bought it for $800,000. And my soft costs, it's like a million and a half dollars. It's actually pretty substantial. Uh, maybe a little bit less, maybe a million two. Fees were a lot of money. I paid about $58,000 per unit in fees. OK, so that's one component that a lot of people don't understand. So and that's,
0: the fees went to what?
1: It's a uh, whole host. Those are school fees. Those are plan check fees. Those are development impact fees. Those are, you know, the rights to connect to the county water authority. That's the Padre Dam, which is your water authority. That's SDG, your power company. So this isn't any construction related dollars, this is the right to dollars, okay? You have the right to, okay? $58,000 a unit. I mean, that's 580,000 bucks right there, just in fees, okay? That's what so developers
0: some, forget to account for.
1: Developers forget to account for, but also the flip side of this is I want people to understand, like, why is housing so expensive? Mm-hmm. Like, I understand, like, we need to pay fees, reasonable fees. Like, I don't, a municipality can't function for free, but $58,000 for, on a townhome, Just use round numbers. If I were to go out to the market and sell a thing for $600,000, I could potentially sell it for $540,000. If that fee didn't exist, my return would be the same. And when you're talking about like entry level housing, like that $60,000 is a lot of money, right? So it's dollars and dollars and dollars every single way. So, anyway, so we got like called a million and a half of soft costs. So, architecture, design. You got your interest reserve in there. You have your fees in there and some other stuff. And then we are about 3.3-ish off on sticks and bricks is what I call it. So everything that we were required to do in the street, all the underground utilities, and then everything on site, and then you know finishing the project going vertical. So total project, $5.5 and, and we are under contract to sell that asset.
0: A podcast is the best way to do both, and we invite you to contact Adam Adams. He can help you launch your podcast, market your show for more listeners, and take all the post-production off your plate so you can focus on your business instead of in it. Listeners of this show can get a free consultation with Adam. To schedule your free consultation, find the link in the show notes. Mm. Wow. And especially in such a high demand market like San Diego and in California in general, you know, there's such a shortage of housing here, at least affordable housing and what you're able to get for these types of properties. And we're seeing like even much older properties selling for such a high value right now because there's such a shortage. There's no place for people to live at this point.
1: It's a challenge. And It's not an easy solution, but the easiest solution is to build more. And I know that it's much easier said than done because we're doing it. Like as an example, that project right there is very small, 10 units. I bought the land literally, I mean, almost three years ago, October 29th, 2019 is when I bought the land. Okay. So we are finished, leased up and sold basically three years later. Okay. That's a small project. On our 89-unit project, I bought the land last June. We're going to submit for plan check November. Mm -hmm. I'm going to get my building permit August, and it's going to take me 22 months to build. So you're talking about five years from the day you start working on a project. And if everything goes right, which there's Tons of stuff that can go wrong. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) If if everything goes right, I can start moving in tenants five years later. Five years. Five years, right? And for a group like us, we can take on a lot more because we have the capacity, wherewithal, talent to go bring stuff out of the ground. The piece that we're missing is a strategic co-GP partner that comes in alongside us and brings substantial capital to the table. So just a bunch of different groups out there. I mean, you're huge players of the world. They're out there building three, four, 500 unit projects, right? They're doing their best. Then you got like the middle guys who we are aspiring to be is like, you're kind of like 100 to 200 units. And then you probably have more that are in that, you know, I'm going to build kind of two here, five there, 10 here, but it just takes so long. There's so much risk. And so many things that, again, <laughs> there's just so many things that can go wrong. It blows your mind that anyone actually wants to take on the challenge. <laughs> <laughs> but and, we do it.
0: And I can only imagine, too, because you would need to get the city involved in all the permits that go into it, the politics that go behind it as well. Within California and the San Diego region, are they pretty susceptible and they open to having a lot of these new developments coming in? And are they supportive of these types of projects?
1: They're getting better. And that's music to all of our ears. You still have the NIMBYs. And a lot of the NIMBYs are the same ones that are kicking and screaming that housing's too expensive. My kids won't live here. But then they're denying the 100-unit project that's next door to them, right? So you can't have it both ways. What the city of San Diego has done, and I applaud them for this because it's huge, is they've identified over the last several years different ways to help developers streamline the process. And unfortunately, the streamlined process is the one that I'm sharing with you because that's all we focus on is the streamlined process. If we were to take on a not streamlined process, it would be much longer than five years. So five years is the fast track. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but what they're doing is they've identified what they call transit oriented development areas, right? TODs. And so they have come up with a transit priority area, TPA, that you can identify on a map. And within the TPA, it gives you certain things that you can do that help you in the process. So A, we're going to label you a buy right project. Okay, so huge distinction in any project. I don't care what you're building out there. By right versus discretionary, ministerial versus discretionary. Okay, so by right and ministerial are synonymous. It basically means you can build this project, nobody can say no. What you're subject to is California building code and some local ordinances, but essentially get a building permit. That's what you need to do. We focus on the process one, ministerial by right projects. So the TPA allows you to do get density bonuses in the TPA if you wanted to, you could build a project and provide zero parking. Okay, that's a business decision. I'd rather be a business decision than dictated. They've also just implemented what's called a complete communities. So within some of these TPA areas that I'm referring to, what they've done is they've said, hey, we don't care what your zone. If you're in the complete communities, We're going to limit you to FAR and you can put as many units in there as you want.
0: And FAR, FAR.
1: So FAR is floor area ratio. And let's just use round numbers. If I have a 10,000 square foot lot and they limit me to a six and a half FAR on a 10,000 square foot lot, I could build a 65,000 square foot building and I can put in there as many units as I want. And they're also, you know, there's some affordability aspects to that. So you have to meet some requirements. There's also uh, so it's affordability, there's parking, you know, they're doing their best, Is I guess is my point is they're being creative in the right areas to say, go build. But it still takes a willing buyer, a willing seller, a seller that gives the buyer enough time to go vet the deal. Because not everybody has $5 million just sitting in their bank ready to buy a piece of property and that's what it costs. So before I raise capital, I need to go verify that I can do what I think I can do. And oftentimes sellers don't want to give you that. So there's the whole deal aspect of it, right? That I just need to have a deal that I can work on. Then you need the capital to go buy it. Then you need the capital to go design it, right? That's gonna take another million and a half dollars. You know, so before you blink, you're like seven million dollars into this deal, right? And like you're just working towards a building permit. Okay. So like how many people have $7 million to sit in their account? Right. So it's a challenge, right? It's an absolute challenge. And I'm just preaching to the choir. A lot of people have have ventured into this side of things, like it's difficult, you know? And Mm -hmm. so what we all need are good partners. Those are good development partners, good consultant partners, good capital partners, And when you build all those systems in place, it allows you to go and move at a much different speed and quite frankly, get better deals.
0: The development side, there's there's so much that goes on behind the scene with development that normal people that like myself and our family and stuff like that, all we see is like, oh, wow, a brand new building went up. and It's beautiful. But we don't know like the ins and outs that go behind it. Like all these little nuances, all these ordinances and titlements and everything like that and construction costs, fees and everything like that that like, goes into development and the time and energy it takes to building this up. And so that's why there's such a shortage of housing because you can't get them up fast enough.
1: Can't get them up fast enough. You know, I think cities. Do their best. I mean, I want to badmouth them too bad, but at the same time, you know, the biggest risk that we have is government in pretty much everything that we do. And so, what I would hope happens, and this is what I'm an advocate for, is like when you engage in a municipality and you go get your plans approved, they have already considered all of your offsite improvements that need to take place. Okay, here's the caveat to that. Somewhere in your conditions of approval, there's some language that you're glossing over that says something like, to the satisfaction of the director. Okay? So here's me. I'm raising capital. I've got a construction loan. I've got a timeline. I get to literally the end of my project. Now, I'm ready to either refinance. I'm ready to lease these up. And I have a city that comes back to me and says, you know... There's some alligatoring happening in that street out there that we want you to fix. And I said, oh, really? I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, you know, I've got my improvement plans that you approved. You reviewed and approved. and It says eight feet from the back of curb. Here it is. Oh, yeah, but see, the street's failing. And I said, OK, was that failing before my project or after my project? Well, we don't know. And I'm like, well, did I do that or is it a function of the street? Well, we're not saying you did it, but you need to fix it. It's your responsibility now. It's my response. Is that in my budget? No. No, no, it's not my budget. So here's what happens is they know that Underwood or whoever developer Y can try to fight us based off a principle. But we know that Underwood, time is money. He's got a construction loan and he wants income sooner than later. So let's just throw all these demands at him at the 11th hour and he's going to pay for it. Or he's going to fight us, and it's a lose-lose situation, right? So what you end up doing is just paying. I've got $400,000 of that on this very small project. Not me, the city saying, oh, if you want my signature, here's what you need to go do. And I'm like, where is that in my plans? Where is that in my conditions? Well, they don't care. So that's a problem. And with all the risk and everything that we're up against, we're trying to, as developers, anybody in real estate, what you're trying to do is... Everything that's known or can be known, you want to know it. Spend the money to know it. There are going to be plenty of things that are unknown. And unfortunately, what the city's doing is throwing stuff at you that could be known that they throw at you at the 11th hour if you want their signature and final on your project. And that's a problem. And quite frankly, it's disgusting. But I'll get off that.
0: So, Brian... The development side of things, there's so much that goes into it. But I mean, at the same time, it sounds like you definitely love what you're doing too. And even though you're pulling your hair out on some of these issues, but you can definitely tell like your passion for in the development side of things and wanting to improve the cities and providing places for people to live because of the shortages out here. So, how has real estate investing impacted your life so far, Brian?
1: Well, it gives me the freedom to put my kids in the school that I want them to go to. Gives me the freedom to take my wife to lunch any day that I want to, stay home and make my kids breakfast before school. I can be home, I can go home every single day and be with my family for dinner. I joke with my wife, I need to ask my boss but pretty sure he's going to say it's okay. <laughs> um I can wake up early and knock stuff out on Saturdays if I have to. I could be home on the weekends, I'm at every single sport event. I mean, these are things that I didn't grow up in, but I might be sacrificing potential wealth, potential income, potential whatever. But nothing's more important than being a father to my kids, a husband to my wife. And if I do that well, then I hit a home run. So I'm focused there. And then I get to play and have fun in this thing called real estate. And it gives me the opportunity to do all those other things.
0: Yeah, because we can always make more money, but we can never get them more time back, especially when they're little kids like that. Because I have the two young ones at the same time. And as you're building up and you're trying to provide for them at the same time, it's so easy to forget why you're doing it. And a lot of people who are building up and just focus on the today and just working and turning and burning the midnight oil, but then they also forget why are you doing it in the first place? And so you got to put that in the forefront.
1: You said that very, very, very well, because it's the perspective. Like I even have to keep myself in check. My wife does it better than I do. We're great partners in a lot of different ways. And, you know, if you're out there burning the midnight oil, you do have to sit back and say, why? Right. Okay. What's the purpose of this? Now, if you've got a great reason, I'm not saying don't do it. There's a time and place to do that. But is it, you know, for your name? Is it, To buy a more expensive car. I mean, I don't know. Like, what's the motive, you know? And so, yeah, for me, like, having being a husband, being a father, like, nothing's better than that. So I get to do all this other stuff, you know, so I get to spend time with them.
0: And what is the one thing that you know now about real estate that you wish you knew when you first started?
1: (laughs) Oh, that's like, I need to pull out a banjo. Um, (laughs) To take the next step. That's a very simple way of get off your seat. Like Everyone knows what the next step is. And so we may not know what the next 20 are because maybe we haven't done it, right? But we know what the next step is. And so if we continue to take that next step, and if I had done that day one, I just would be so much further along than I am right now. And I don't mean that to beat myself up. It's just... I spend a lot of time, I'm going to say we, but I spend a lot of time uh, historically just analyzing everything and hypothecating. And then ultimately, when you do that, that just like fear sets in and then you end up just not doing anything. And gosh, there's nothing more costly than not doing anything. You'd rather get off your butt, do something, fail and learn like you become an expert at it because no one else around you got up and failed the way you did. So you've got something to take that next approach. And they're still sitting back going, well, I'm not sure if I can do it. (laughs) Go figure it out. So I wish I had sort of like some of these things like recorded that I could like send myself a long time ago, you know, like, just do it. Go fail miserably. It's okay.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And what is the one thing that sets the successful people apart in real estate?
1: We talked about a little bit. I think it's that perspective. And success is kind of defined different ways, right? But I would say like that some people that are in my life that I'm closest to that I would view as successful, you could say financially, like what they make, what they're worth, like, yes, they check all those boxes, but they're not living for just that, right? They're living for a greater purpose and they're living for family and they've got desires, like these innate desires to make the world a better place somehow, some way. And, you know, they feel like they're privileged in getting to work in the work that they do. Like, it's almost like a pinch me moment every morning. And I'm happy to say I haven't checked all the wealth and income boxes, but I do wake up every day and it's a pinch me moment. I feel blessed to do what I do.
0: Awesome. Brian, I so appreciate you coming on the show today and sharing all this with us. It's an incredible story that what you've been able to do and all the things that you've been able to experience. And so thank you for sharing just a little bit of that with
1: us. Thank you, Eileen. I appreciate it.
0: So for our listeners out there who also want to reach out, find out more about what you're doing, where's the best place that they can go?
1: Yes, it's investwithbrian.com. So my name is spelled with a Y, -Y B-R-Y-A-N, Investwithbrian.com.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much, Brian. Thank you. And thank you for listening to our podcast today, brought to you by Bonavest Capital. We'd really appreciate it if you can go to iTunes right now and leave a rating and written review. Also, please don't forget to subscribe so you can always get the latest episodes. You can also connect with us on Facebook, How Did They Do It Real Estate. We'd love to hear your feedback and any topics that you're interested in for future episodes. If you're anything like Zayla and me and believe that real estate investing is a great way to create passive income and build long-term wealth, Check out our free apartment syndication due diligence checklist for passive investors at bonavestcapital.com forward slash checklist. Sale and I created this checklist for ourselves as we evaluated different multifamily syndication opportunities as a passive investor. So we would love to share it with you so you can use it as a resource as well. Download your free copy today at bonavestcapital.com forward slash checklist. Lastly, to learn more about us, you can go to BonavisCapital.com and fill out the Contact Us page so you can speak to us directly. Nothing on the show should be considered as specific personal advice. Please consult your legal, tax, and real estate professionals for individualized advice.